New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Houston bought a small ranch in the southwest corner of Colorado. It's situated at an elevation of 9,000 feet near the small town of Creed. She was 31 years old, had no job, no place to live except her North Face VE24 tent, and all her possessions could fit in the back of her car. She knew nothing about ranching. It was a leap of faith and one that gifted her with many adventures, animal companions, and the kindness of neighbors in this sparsely populated and remote part of Colorado. In this dialogue, we'll be exploring a life lived in relationship to the land and to one another with our guest, Pam Houston. Pam Houston is a prize-winning author and professor of English at the University of California, Davis. She co-founded the literary nonprofit Writing by Writers and also teaches in the Institute of American Indian Arts Low Residency MFA program and at writers' conferences around the country and the world. Her many books include Cowboys Are My Weakness, Contents May Have Shifted, and Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the high country. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can trust the land to hold us and trust the many angels that live among us in the form of humans and animals with our guest, Pam Houston. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Pam, welcome. Thank you very much. You've traveled all over the world, and in your 20s, you had many, many adventures in those travels, like uh, risk life and limb in many of those travels, taking various jobs around the world, really. And uh, then at some point, you turned 31, and you started looking for a place to land, so there's a story there. Please, please share with us a little bit of that story. Well, I'm a traveler by nature. I'm a risk taker by nature. Um, I, when I was 30, I sold my first book, a collection of short stories called Cowboys Are My Weakness. Um, I sold it for $21,000. And my agent at the time, who was still my agent all these years later, said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. And, um, 
And that was, you know, good parenting advice, (laughs) which I hadn't had much of. So I got really serious. And I thought, what if this is the last chunk of money I ever have? I was a graduate student. I was making $4,500 a year. I managed to get myself on adventures, but it was usually, as you say, for work, some way that I could be paid to be in the Alaskan wilderness or the African bush or wherever for um, months at a time. And so I had no money and didn't expect to have any. And so I thought, yeah, I have to find a home. I have to do something meaningful with this $21,000. At the same time, what was happening in your life is that your mother had just died. Your father was still alive, I believe, at the time. And That's right. Um, my mother died that same year. Um, interestingly, I didn't realize that until I wrote the book, which I know sounds crazy, but I've never been good at keeping track of years. And so it wasn't until I actually wrote this book and then it was fact-checked that I understood that I went looking for a home just really months after my mother died. And, and I mean, I was present at her funeral. You know, it wasn't, we weren't estranged or anything. I just had never made that connection in my mind that the death of my mother sent me out looking for a home. That's really interesting because my father died when I was 12 years old, and that's when I got my first horse. Mm -hmm. Then years later, years, 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 you know, I'm in my 40s, my mother died, and then I got another horse. (laughs) You know, know, there was something, there's something there that connects us to, grounds us in some way. Is Was that what you were looking for, some sort of... I think so. My friend, uh, Terry Tempest-Williams, who's been my friend all the way back to grad school, um, she said to me, now, I saw her not long after my mother died. I was on tour with Cowboys, and she said, now there's nothing that tethers you anymore to the earth. And, you know, a lot of people said a lot of things. That was a whirlwind year. The death of my mother, the success of my first book. I mean, I, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. But those words, you know, again, people say things that, that change your life all the time. And and my agent said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. And Terry said, you are not tethered anymore to the earth. And I, I think my actions were in response to those statements, which clearly had truth for me or I wouldn't have acted on them. Exactly. Now, I'm going to skip way forward. And I know that you toured around, looked in Northern California, you looked in Port, uh, in Oregon, you looked kind of all over. But you ended up in some way in this small town in the southwest corner of Colorado. And I, I just love this story. In this small town, you ended up at a wedding. Right. Is that right? <laughs> so tell that story, please. Well, I had driven all over pretty much the, the the Rocky Mountain West and the coast. You're right. I started in California, went up the coast, and then worked my way down through the Rocky Mountain West to Southern Colorado. Um, I had been sent to Creed by two other writers, uh, Robert Boswell and Antonia Nelson, who were friends of mine, just to check it out. They had heard it was cool. It was sort of one of those things. And when I got there, um, the guy who owned the hardware store was marrying his longtime sweetheart. And they had just put an ad in the paper that said everyone should come to the wedding. And so 
as I was meeting the people in the town, it was only a town of 400 and something then, and it's only a town of 500 and something now. So I want to interrupt, like, it's not like people send out invitations. That's, <laughs> right. that's the way it's done in that's the town. Right. No, it just put it put a notice in the paper and everyone's invited. So I went to the wedding. Um, I had a nice time. I met all the people in town who mattered, basically. And they took me out to see, a, a real estate agent took me out to see this 120-acre homestead with a little log house on it. And um, it was the third week of September, which in Colorado means all of the aspens are changing in these giant ribbons of color. Um, yellow, but also kind of a, just all the color of Buddhist monks robes, basically. <laughs> and the whole mountainsides are like that. It's the most beautiful time in a, in a year of beautiful times. And here was this 120 acres. Um, my $21,000, which is literally all I had, represented 5% down. I found it significant that you did not really resonate with the little piece of five acres there in town. And you were in your car. You described being in your car and someone named Dale kind of taps on your window. Right. And Dale is a kind of angel, I think, <laughs> right? among us. It's certainly. You know, really. This book is full of angels. Exactly. That's yeah. how you got out to this ranch that you had no way in in God's good earth to afford. Right. So the lady who was first taking me around showed me things I could afford based on the amount of money I told her I had to put down. So she's she showed me a few little minor shacks in town. She showed me a couple of empty lots of five acres. But she told me about what's called the Blair Ranch. She told me about it. And I said, well, that sounds nice. And she said, oh, you don't want to be all the way out there, you know, by which she meant I couldn't afford it, you know. And I was just about to leave, move on to the next town, go over to the Telluride side of Wolf Creek Pass and check things out over there. And Dale Peisel, a tall rodeo belt buckle wearing cowboy, knocked on my window and said, I hear you want to see the Blair Ranch. And I said, okay. Um, and uh, it was actually his associate, Mark Richter, who took me out there. I'm making it sound like, you know, there's a, I'm making the, the real estate office see, sound bigger than it is. It looks kind of like a tack room. It's full of saddles <laughs> yeah. and whatnot. So Mark Richter took me out there and um, I fell in love with it. And it was, uh, it, it was five times what I could have afforded if I had had a job, which I didn't. <laughs> and so here, the next angel is Donna uh, Blair. That's right. Own the property. That's right. So Mark Richter says to me, Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. Um, give me your $21,000 and a signed hardcover of Cowboys Are My Weakness, and I'll see what I could do. And Donna Blair sold me the ranch for 5% down and a signed hardcover of my book of short stories. And she carried the note herself because no bank would have loaned me money. 
and um and I went about trying to pay it off, <laughs> there you go. which took up a lot of time and energy, but good time and energy because I was writing and I was teaching and I was putting, saving all my pennies and giving them to Donna Blair. And not knowing anything about ranching. <laughs> and not even knowing that hot water didn't just come out of the wall. <laughs> it's like chop wood carry water it was uh, like that absolutely i get it i get it i got it when i read it and and then now there are all sorts of uh animals in your life they're they're now you're you're a fan and a, a lover of wolfhounds uh, i am and so you've had quite a few I've had eight Irish wolfhounds total. The the current ones I have are number seven and eight. Um, I fell in love with the breed accidentally. A, a guy, I was always the, I always went to the pound to get my dogs like you're supposed to. Thought I would always do that. And a guy came through Creed. Nice guy. I wouldn't have necessarily taken a restaurant recommendation from him. I wouldn't have necessarily taken a book recommendation from him. But he talked about this dog that he had just lost. And he showed me a picture of Zephod, his dog, standing on with all four paws on the kitchen floor, just drinking right out of the tap. And I oh. was like, I want one. Okay. I'm, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Pam Houston. She is the author of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And if you want to know about her work and all of her books and her writing workshops and everything that she's offering, you can go to her website, pamhouston.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And some of her other books, as we've mentioned, are Cowboys Are My Weakness, Contents May Have Shifted, and other books that you want to check out. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Pam Houston. She's the author of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And Pam, we're talking about some of your animals. You've mentioned your Irish wolfhounds, uh, and then there, there are a couple of horses, some sheep, some chickens, some... Uh, Mini donks. Oh, right. <laughs> They're two little donkeys <laughs> characters. Uh and all sorts of other things. So, you know, what I'd love to to have you speak about, why is it that some of us 
find that our relationship with animals, and especially with their living and dying, uh, will produce tears and and deep, deep uh, grief that we don't necessarily get in touch with when our, our parents die or our good friends, our human friends die. I just find that that's true in my life. Nothing will bring me, even while I was reading your book, there were many times in the book, and you're talking about different animals, a little baby elk or or, or something, and I'm just crying. Mm. Do, do you have an explanation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an explanation for myself. Um, I, I was an only child. My parents were um, not much interested in being parents and they were both really bad drinkers and my father was violent and and I don't say any of that with any kind of thought that that makes me unique in any way but as a result I didn't really trust the humans I spent my first 18 years with 17 years with you know I, I humans in my experience for a long time were pretty radically untrustworthy. Not all of them. You know, I had the teacher who saved me or the babysitter who saved me. I had good humans in my life. But but overall, you know, humans were not to be trusted and animals were incredibly consistent in their love and in the way they showed up for me. And that was just cats when I was young, but turned into dogs as I started to make my own decisions about the animals I spent time with. And I just don't think there's any way to underestimate the what I think of as this gale force of love that comes at me from my animals, from my dogs especially, but also my horses. I think they have so much to teach us animals about being in the present, about how to die, about how to be with the dying, about how to be consistent, about how to be present. You know, I just think there are teachers and... Um, I get when I write for publications, magazines and stuff, I, I always get the note, you know, aren't you anthropomorphizing here? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I write back and I say, you know, I don't really believe in anthropomorphization. <laughs> you know, I don't, I think that's a weird concept that was invented because we want to oppress animals. You know, anytime we want to oppress anything, whether it's animals or people of different races or people from foreign countries, we try to make it seem like they don't have a full range of emotions. And, and I don't claim to think, to believe I know exactly how emotions work for animals, but my God, I know they have them. Well, they I, may not be ours, but they a, have them. <laughs> well, I know that, that you write, you say, uh, who in your life has been ecstatic over your arrival, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, a dog. I mean, I, I think it's Robert Thurman, who's the uh, Buddhist scholar mm -hmm. in New York. Yes, uh, of course, he's really right. He's writing. He said, "Dogs are bodhisattvas." Of course they are. Of course <laughs> you know, they are, and they, horses too. Oh, it's true. Uh, and donkeys. I mean, because <laughs> donkeys are so smart. They're so smart. Um. I mean, maybe they're too smart to be bodhisattvas. <laughs> well, well I, I think of a lot of people say, oh, I'll get my, my little girl a pony. Uh -huh. And so they get her a little like Shetland pony. And that's the worst kind of horse you can get for a kid because they are so smart. So smart. And they're, they're just going to brush that kid off right. in no time. Right. So 
donkeys are the same way, huh? Right, right. They are. The donkeys are so smart. And they can completely outsmart both the horses and the dogs and me. <laughs> I mean, I really have a lot of respect for donkeys after living with them for about a decade now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have grown into my love of people. I, there are many people I love, many people I love and, and trust now at this late in life. I'm 57 years old, but it was the dogs who got me there. It was, it was the dogs who made me understand that loss is part of the equation and I can open my heart and sometimes it's not going to work out. Well, I'm thinking of one of your dogs in particular, Fenton. Yes. And you just do this beautiful piece on him uh, in his death and dying and, and how one of your friends drove miles and miles through a whiteout. I mean, whiteout. In a Prius. In, in, in a Prius. <laughs> not, not even a four-wheel drive. I mean, in a Prius to come to be with you and Fenton in his dying. And and he was named after a writer, Fenton Johnson. Yes. And, and he did a eulogy. And I'm just going to read this sentence because it's so great. Fenton, the canine, was a teacher he taught through the simple fact of being who he was. In the losses lie the lessons. If we only embrace death as another aspect of life, if we would let animals teach us how to live and how to die, we might just treat each other and our animals better than we do. Mm-hmm. That's such a beautiful piece. Just have you ever he, met Fenton Johnson? I haven't. But you, you need to. Oh, my You would goodness. love him. I, I'm looking forward to it. Thank <laughs> you. I'll write his name down, and I'm going to connect with him at some point. It's just great. I, I just love what he said there. It just also reminds me of how uh, you've been held by many people. And one of the persons that you write about, which was just so much fun, was Martha Washington. (laughs) And you describe her. She came in when you were two months old. Two two days old. Two days old. (laughs) And she held you through all of that trauma of living with alcoholic parents and being in 16 accidents Mm -hmm. where the car was totaled before you were 16 years old. That's right. You know, so you can imagine, I mean, what a traumatic childhood. And then she, this woman was with you as this alternate reality, so to speak. And I love it when you just describe her walking across the street, (laughs) describe this woman taking you across the street. Well, she was, um, she worked for motor vehicles for many years. By the time I met her, she was retired, but her lifelong dedication to the State Motor Vehicles Department of New Jersey made her believe that she could put her hand up and walk into traffic and everyone would have to stop. And she did that with me often. And, um, you know, it was a different time. It was the 60s. So uh, people weren't going so fast (laughs) as they are now. Um, But people would stop. And we, I mean, she wouldn't, test it you know she wouldn't plow across a highway but right. but she just believed that if we needed to cross the street we could cross it anywhere and she put her hand up and off we went and it was an old lady and a little kid and people stopped so it kept proving her 
theory correct. So she was one of those angels. You describe your mother. She was, besides being an alcoholic, she was also anorexic. Right. And she would withhold food from you and and want you to only eat in a certain way because she wanted you to have a certain body type and look a certain way. And so Martha was this other angel in right. your life. My mother found Martha on the bulletin board at the hospital when I was two days old. My mother wanted to go to a party. She needed a babysitter. She had just given birth to me, but that was her life. You know, she was a showgirl. And, and you know, smart and beautiful and talented and all kinds of things. But she wanted to go to a party. So, so she went to the bulletin board in the hospital and called Martha Washington. And, Mar I mean, talk about an angel. <laughs> yeah. You know, Martha Washington came into my life when I was two days old and died when I was 20. And... Mm. And really never abandoned me to the chaos of that household. You know, she, I, I spent many, many, many nights in her house. She taught me how to read when I was two and a half. She taught me my manners. She taught me to hold the door for people. She taught me to say thank you. She taught me the constellations. I mean, it, Martha taught me also that if I looked for goodness, I would find it. And that was probably her biggest lesson. But, you know, she was a, she was a, cranky, feisty, fiery old lady who taught aerobics. And imagine, like in the 60s, she taught aerobics to senior citizens. I mean, she was all fire. Like she wasn't exactly warm and cuddly, but she was so consistent. She let me eat food. <laughs> she let me eat the food I liked, by which I mean like enough to fill me up, you know, um, yeah. And my mom, you know, it's funny, you said she withheld food and I've never thought of it that way, but of course she did. She she tried to get me on her team. You know, she'd be like, let's see if we can get all the way to dinner without eating anything. And and the creepiest thing she did, which is in the book, is she, if I was hungry or she were hungry, we would take pieces of white bread and, and smash them up in our fists and run cold water on them so that the bread crumbled and went down the drain. And that was her eating substitute. She said, this will give us the, the feeling of eating. Whew. Yeah. Man, Intense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, in your writing, what I noticed, Pam, it, with all the, this, your father, really, as you described, is very ungenerous man. I mean, to a fault. He was without generosity. And and yet I didn't detect any resentment towards him in your writing. I mean, I, I suppose you have had some resentments, but I wouldn't say so. As uh, um, in another interview, someone said, "Well, have you forgiven your parents?" And I couldn't say yes, but the answer wasn't no. You know, I don't think I don't think they're they're mine to forgive. I think. Uh, my journey has been to accept them. Um, neither of them had good love as children. They didn't have any models for it. Each in their own way, they had their own version of a horrific childhood. And, um, you know, they didn't want to be parents. That begs the question, why were they? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't harbor resentment. Um, I don't feel like a victim. I honestly don't. I feel like, I feel like, they wanted children not at all. And and that maybe wasn't the worst thing because they sent me 
out of the house right. and I found the natural world, right. which was a much better parent. You know, my, my mother was an alcoholic. Uh, and and then after my father died, you know, we were kind of unsupervised in many ways. But when she died in 1979, I was able to say, Mother, you were the best mother I could ever, ever have had. And that was because at that moment in my life, I was really happy with who I was. Mm. And I knew I wouldn't be anybody else if anything had been well, different. Well, that's it. And that's what I say all the time. People say, oh, imagine what you could have accomplished if you had had nice parents. Well, no, no. That's exactly wrong. Yeah, exactly. I'm here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm here with Pam Houston. She's the author of Deep Creek, Finding Help in the High Country. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Pam Houston. She's just a beautiful, beautiful writer. I just recommend her writing so much. And her book that we're talking about right now is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And Pam, uh, we've just talked a little bit about your growing up and, and being rather unsupervised <laughs> in so many ways from some parents who didn't particularly want want children in their life and, and you as their daughter. So you have found your way. You have found your way. Actually, now you're in your 30s. I'm bringing the listeners into where we are now in, in your 30s, and you've bought this ranch in Colorado. You've been working it. You have animals. You have friends. You're writing. You're going off and teaching writing. And and now it's been some years. You're 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 a little better at 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 being a rancher, right? Uh, and with a little help from your friends, of course, with a lot of help from your friends. And you you devote a part of your book to uh, just a devastating wildfire. And I just want to say, those of us who live west of the Rockies. This is a reality for us and right. has been for many years. This is no joke. Right. This is big time. I mean, I just I took time to write out all the fires that that have happened in Northern California in just the last 4 years. The acres and acres. So, I mean, this is big time. So you experienced this firsthand right there on the ranch of wildfire. And you describe that, and you point out that some of this is caused by our own human hands that we we've exacerbated that we put wildfires on steroids, as mm -hmm. you say, because of our own human participation. So please uh, talk talk a bit about that. Well, um, when I started writing the book. I really wanted it to be about the ranch, and I wondered if I could write it exclusively about the ranch, and I tried. 
at one point, my agent said, isn't this the book where you really talk about what happened to you as a kid? And she was right. You know, the, the ranch had to be a sanctuary for the childhood, you know, and my search for home in the absence of it previously, it, it made the book make sense. The other thing that was happening the whole time I was writing this book, which is basically over the last seven years, is, you know, the imminence of the climate catastrophe that we're in has become more and more and more, uh, you know, uh, undeniable. And and we see one way we see that here in the West is with fire. I mean, we live in a post-fire landscape now, you know, and just hundreds of thousands of acres. If you look at the whole, at the whole American West and the Canadian West, I mean, it's it's unthinkable the amount of acres that have burned. And of course, that's climate related in in certain ways. Um, you know, my my fire was. Um, spruce, mostly spruce pine forest. And those fires do burn historically very big every 200 years. But of course, the intensity of the fire was increased by the beetle kill, which is related to the climate. You know, it we're, we're in dire straits, you know, and you don't have to have your finger on the pulse of science to know that. Um, it's 10 degrees hotter on average where I live than it was when I moved there 25 years ago. And of course, what I realized over the course of writing the book, um, you know, every book teaches you something you didn't know about yourself. And, and I didn't see until I got it on the page together, the connection between, you know, what I'm asking of the reader, which is to, to, to love the natural world, to continue to love the natural world, even though loving it means holding a sadness right there next to the love that we have really spent this planet that that the earth is dying at our hands and that's a deep sadness and when you're out in nature and you see the ways it's changed or you see the effects of climate change or even when you just see the beauty and think oh this is going to be steamrolled you know that you know trump's coming in here with his oil barons like <laughs> like you can't love the natural world anymore without holding that sadness right next to it that that we're in trouble and um you know we've we're on the verge of spending our last chips. Um, so you're, what you're saying is to not turn away from witnessing that, right? both the beauty and the devastation, to not turn our backs on it, and even though it's hard. Well, that seems to me the challenge of right now. I mean, so much about our political situation right now is trying to get people to say yes or no, them or us. And to me, it's it's all about the and. It's all about, you know, yes, this is deeply sad that um, our forests are burning. Yes, our forests are still beautiful. And even in, in post-burn, they become beautiful again because of nature's urge to renew itself. And, um, and I mean, there's so much to love out there still, and we have to keep loving it. We have to keep loving it actively because if we just turn to cities or turn to our screens, we're just going to eat it up even faster. But what so, I saw when I wrote the book was the relationship between that and the my own damage that I incurred as a child and, you know, how the course of my life I've had to learn to love myself anyway. I, I talk about it as as leaving it. Like, do you leave the dog off at the door of the vet 
and just let the vet give the dog the shot that puts her down? Or do we sit there with the earth and pet her ears, you know, as she dies? And, and I don't, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what we might do now to prolong our time on earth. Um, or if the best thing for the earth would be for it to shake its most determined parasite off her back and go about its business without us. Uh, I don't know, you know, but, but I do know that I have learned to love myself in spite of the damage that was, that, that was, you know, perpetrated on me as a child. And, and now I feel it's my job to love the earth in spite of the way her beauty is diminished in some cases. Now there there's a there's something that you wrote and I wanted to ask you what you meant by this phrase and it was uh when you were saying uh something about how uh, mother nature bats last mm -hmm. you know and and here's what you wrote uh you said seeing her power up close like this makes me believe she may find a way to survive but still what what did you mean by that? Um, just that um, seeing the fire out my bedroom window, <laughs> I saw that I watched the fire eat up about seven miles of a mountainside in a couple of hours, you know, flames shooting hundreds of feet in the air. Mother Nature is ferocious, and what she's trying to do up there is clean out those dead trees. We've got hundreds of thousands of acres of beetle-killed spruce on the mountainside, and that's not a healthy forest. So she sends some lightning down, burns that forest to the ground, new aspens come in, new life comes in, fireweed. You know, that's that's mother nature cleansing that forest and that's that's a beautiful thing and very impressive and there are scientists who say we could take the earth all the way down to the microbes and she would still recover and there's a there's a, another part in the book where i talk to a environmental scientist who says oh yeah the future of the earth looks very grim in the 100 year frame but in the 500 year frame it looks pretty good he says there won't be hardly any people here but the ones who are here will have learned a lot. And I do think that's a form of hope. I mean, I mean, obviously it will create massive suffering um, for humans and creatures. But, um, you know, we've gotten ourselves into this mess and, and I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to fix it. What the interesting question to me is how we're going to be, how we're going to act now, like are we going to love the earth? Are we going to put our money and our time into protecting what's left? Or if it's even too late for that, are we going to sing? Are we going to sit by our bedside? Like, aren't we more interesting people if we do, as opposed to just turning our backs and saying, oh, yeah, that was beautiful once, but now... Um, I'm just going to go to the mall. You, you write also, like, there are a lot of people who, I think you say something like 80% of the population has never seen the Milky Way. Right. Has, Live in a place where they can't see. Can't, they can't see it. I mean, because of all the light, light pollution. pollution. And, and also that 
teaching writing in the way that you do, uh, there would be people who wouldn't understand any reference about elk or bristlecone pine or whatever. Right. Uh, they they don't understand. I, I'm thinking that the uh, Oxford Dictionary, the 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 youth dictionary, has actually they they they've dropped some words like briscoe pine or like i mean just these nature terms that you and i have grown up with right. have been dropped from the dictionary and put in things that are kind of technological things that like spam or something what spam means <laughs> right, uh, right. and it doesn't mean the thing that you eat that's out of a can, out of a, can. <laughs> a bit money python yeah ate. uh and uh so there we are uh just how do we encourage each other to find that and befriend that tree that grows close to us. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's outside our apartment on the sidewalk, right. you know, yeah. or something. Right. I mean, I remember when my mother was dying and she was living with me and with her dying and I was standing waiting for a bus and there was a bush there, just this big old scraggly bush and I just turned to it and I buried my face Mm -hmm. in this bush and I just felt this living being taking my tears right I was bereft and the bush held me right and I remember that moment as very precious sure I mean it's only our culture that doesn't believe in that most cultures believe you could give your sorrow to a tree and the tree would hold it. You know, we've gotten so far away from that, but but that's a real thing. I mean, I believe it's a real thing. Well, you've experienced it. Right. You've experienced it. It's And that's what you talk about when you say, and in my introduction and in your book, the earth has held you. This ranch that you live on has held you. Right. It Literally. Literally. Yeah, and and it's um, it has mothered me. It it grew me up. It taught me responsibility. Um, it taught me consistency. <laughs> I was going to say consistency. We'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Pam Houston. She is the author of Deep Creek: Finding Hope in the High Country. And, and Pam also is a great writer and teaches writing. She teaches at University of California, Davis, near Sacramento, California. And um, she teaches writing all over the world, actually. So check out her website, pamhouston.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Pam Houston. She's a wonderful writer of many books and teaches writing. And her newest book, or the one that we're talking about this week, is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And I would love to talk about your writing practice. And you make the statement um, that your writing rises more often from tactile experience than it does uh, from any writing theory that you get from a book. So let's talk about writing and just the act of writing. Sure. Um, my method, which I teach, um, though not exclusively, I'm happy to meet anybody's work wherever it is, but I, what I do as a writer and what I've always done is when I'm out in the world, the, the natural world or, or not, the urban world, any world I find myself in, I, I try to pay really strict attention with all my senses and I'm waiting in that space for something to do what I call glimmer at me, something that's going to suggest itself to me as a metaphor. But I don't think about what the metaphor means. You know, I'm really just recording <laughs> noteworthy. And when I say noteworthy, I mean only to me uh, experience. So that could be just the way the light's reflecting off the surface of the river. It could be a conversation overheard at the grocery store. Um, it could be having the great good fortune of seeing 800 narwhal in the eastern Canadian Arctic on their migration. I guess that would be a glimmer for anyone. But but what I'm waiting for is to feel this feeling of resonance. It's actually a physical feeling. It's a vibrational, really. And And what that vibration means is that that thing in the outside world is going to help me unlock some internal thing, some part of my story. Or it could just be because it's so cool. I can't not write about it like the narwhal. Um, <laughs> and then I just have all these pieces of the physical world that I feel like I've literally sort of scooped up and dropped on the page in language. And then I see how they go together. How, like which ones want to come out and play, which ones feel hot. And when I have some writing time, I will literally bring them together. So so that's how I write everything I write, which means what I don't do is I, I don't say, oh, I have an idea for a character or I want to tell a story about. I, I don't do that. I mean, with the ranch, I, I decided I wanted to commit a book to my my 25-year relationship to this ranch, but I still didn't do anything other than just say, okay, what are the glimmers from the ranch? You know, there was that time I fed the horses during the blizzard. There was that time the elk calf got abandoned by her mother on the property. There's the time, you know, and so I just start writing those pieces and then see how they might work together. I love that. I love that because it's the way I write. I, I take notes and uh, I, I keep this kind of little notebook that it says, oh, I really want to flesh this one out because it, it, I saw it out of the corner of my eye. Mm -hmm, right. And it attracted my attention. Right, exactly. And, and why did it attract my attention? And then I kind of write out from that. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> and, and it's so deeply satisfying because it does, it takes us into the world in a different way, right. wouldn't you say? Can you describe that? I can. <laughs> um, to me, it um, 
it's much more intuitive. I'm much more in my intuitive brain when I notice those things and when I write them down. Because what I'm trying to avoid early in the writing is my analytical brain taking over. I think our analytical brains are big fat liars and I don't want to overdetermine the meaning of any of these things. So when I'm actually recording them, like I write them down and I think get in, get out, you know, write them down, um, let them sit on the page and then just wait till you have time to mess with it rather than trying to manipulate it so that it fits with something else I'm writing or write all the way to its meaning. You know, I'm not interested in knowing its meaning. In fact, the longer that I can not know its meaning, the better. And I'm just interested in getting it down, believing in that vibrational feeling that it was meaningful and then seeing what other ones I can pair it with. But I, 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 to me, it's like a way to do an end around my analytical brain and to stay in the intuitive art-making place as long as possible. Eventually, you know, once there's a draft, I have to start engaging my analytical brain more, not necessarily to find out what something means, but to, you know, just to think about, oh, well, the first 20 pages of this is full of birds and then birds fell out of it altogether. Like just, <laughs> you know, just some some cleanup or some, you know, seeing themes. And, you know, I, I'm not against my analytical brain. I have a good mm -hmm. one and I'm glad it's there, but I try to keep it out of the process as long as I can. I can remember the first piece I ever wrote and I really aspired to be a writer. I really, it's something that I really wanted to do well. And I wrote my first piece about a horse and I turned it over to two people, one who was a copy editor and the other was a a teammate in New Dimensions who was an English major. And I gave it to Phil, and Phil got back to me, and he said to me, this is a mess. And my heart just fell. And he said, but I want to tell you I'm jealous. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, because he said, everything about this can be fixed you know, the grammar, the spelling, the everything, it can all be fixed. But you're just able to write down that stream of consciousness and you really connect with it in a visceral way. He said, as an English major, I can't put anything on the paper unless it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect grammar, perfect this, perfect. And that analytical mind, since then, he's been able to lighten abandon <laughs> that and lighten up. But in that moment, I, I it's kind of what you're talking about. Right. Well, any to me, any way I can free my mind or free my intuition to speak through the metaphor, because that's where it speaks the best. I always say, I think the metaphor always knows more than I do. And um, so, you know, the narwhal knows more than I do, or the light on the surface of the river does, you know, that, that impulse toward a thing in the physical world is going to be more emotionally intelligent than I am if I am trying to, like I said, make it fit a certain way or make it do a certain thing. I want to try to keep that out of the process as long as I can. And, and I find that if I put, you know, several different of these glimmers together, you know, they have a, they distill and the meaning, you know, kind of oozes up out of them. And to me, that's the ideal writing situation, as opposed to me saying, well, I want to mean this thing. So I'm going to go out and find the metaphor that means it. Like, that's not going to make good work for me. So I'm, I'm amazed, Pam, 
how someone, and this is where I am right now in mine, I mean, the book that I did was a book of essays. Uh-huh. And that's a very different kettle of fish uh, because you have all these separate, maybe they can be in different categories, but but to do a whole book like Deep Creek that has a kind of trajectory from, well, it goes back and forth. It goes to your childhood, and then it goes into the here and now. It does go back and forth, but still, it's this whole story that's held together. I find that amazing. How do you do that? How do you do a whole book that has a beginning, a middle, and an end? Not in order. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, one thing I do is I try to find the form. And in this book, I knew the form had something to do with a calendar or an almanac. And the short pieces, there's 12 of them, like the 12 months that fall between the other chapters, they're really creating the spine of the book so that the longer chapters can wind around in time and in subject matter. But those 12... Um, ranch almanac pieces they're in the order of the calendar and I had to work really hard to get them in the order of the calendar because of like who you get introduced to and which animals I have when and all that so I had to really maneuver them to get them in the right place in fact I had one called the Perseids and I about the Perseid meteor shower and I couldn't get it in August where it belonged so I had to change it to the Leonids and, Uh and rewrite it I had to change my meteor shower so I could keep the order of the calendar right So for me, that's how, like, there's always some kind of structure that holds it together. My my last book, Contents May Have Shifted, I think of that book as a 12-sided Rubik's Cube, which is called a dodecahedron. Like, that (laughs) geometry was important to me as a kid, and, and I like to understand the geometry of every book. And that's, those are kind of my parameters. That's how I hold the whole thing together, even when I get really lost in it even when I can't keep it organized and I can't keep it in order. And I think that's actually very good time. That's very good writing time when, when you're in despair and you think, oh, I've just lost it. I can't make sense of any of this. It's too big. It's gotten out of control. I'll never get it back. Those, I think, are sometimes the best, you know, the, the times of writing that yields the best results, even though they're, they're terrifying and full of despair. So did you see yourself as a writer early on as a, as as a teenager or anything? Did that was that something you aspired to or Yeah, I mean again, I was an only child. My parents were drunk. You know, I I spent a lot of time reading and writing and I took, you know, the creative writing classes that were offered at my high school. So I was on a trajectory, even though I didn't always know it for sure. At one point, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist, like every girl, like me. You know, yeah. at one point, I thought I was going to be a park ranger. But in general, I um, writing was always a thing. Well, we could just talk about so much more. And I just want to thank you so much, Pam, for being with us today on New Dimensions. Oh, thank you, Justine. I had a really good time. I did, too. I've been here with Pam Houston. She is the author of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And if you want to know more about her writing workshops and also her other books, please go to her website, pamhouston.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3669. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.